Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Hand to Hand in the Trenches, a missionary story podcast. I'm Caleb Hickam. And I'm Kimberly Croker. And we are your hosts for this episode of Hand to Hand. Hand to Hand is a ministry outreach of Charity Baptist Tabernacle in Amarillo, Texas. And Hand to Hand is a missionary story podcast that tells the true stories of Christians around the world who have hazarded their lives for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Welcome back. This is part three of the story of John Birch. I'm sure you remember that last week, World War II had really been picking up. The Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. But John had been crossing the Japanese lines into free China and back and forth to preach for the Chinese churches in the area. If he had stayed in the big cities, the Japanese would have arrested him. But... God had other plans for him. That's right. And John had just sent a letter to volunteer in the military as a chaplain or even as just a private, but he hadn't received a reply yet. But at the end of last week's episode, John had helped to rescue Colonel Jimmy Doolittle and his raiders. Colonel Doolittle and his men had flown a top-secret mission to bomb Tokyo as a morale booster for the U.S. and to show the Japanese that their homeland was vulnerable to American bombers. Sixteen B-25s had taken off from the USS Hornet on a one-way trip. They barely had enough fuel to make it back to southeastern China. No one was expecting them, due to the top-secret nature of the mission. So, John had his work cut out for him to find and rescue all the American flyers. But meeting Colonel Doolittle was God's way of opening a door for John to help bring victory to the Allied forces in a huge way, while still doing God's work for him that he had called him to do in China. John had helped 60 of the 80 Doolittle Raiders and was making his way to Chongqing to report on the Doolittle Raiders. While passing through a base of the famed Flying Tigers, John hoped to catch a train to Quellen and, from there, ride with General Chenault to Chongqing. 
McQuillan was the southernmost base in a string of air bases down the middle of southern central China. General Chenault had been hired by Chiang Kai-shek as an air advisor to train Chinese pilots to fight the Japanese. On top of that, he had his own motley bunch of mercenaries recruited in the U.S. before Pearl Harbor. They were known as the Flying Tigers, and they had consistently defeated the Japanese in air battles when outnumbered up to 10 to 1. The Chinese loved and admired Chenault and his men, and they even called General Chenault the Big Tiger. When John got to Quellin, he asked where to find the general. He didn't see any buildings, just a bunch of caves along the airstrip. He was pointed in the direction of the operating cave. Then someone pointed out the big tiger and told him to speak loudly because he was hard of hearing. General Chenault, sir. I'm John Birch, sir. I've been helping the Doolittle Flyers. Now I'm supposed to make a report at the provincial capital in Chongqing, and I was hoping I would be able to catch a ride with you. Birch. Birch. Oh, yes. You're the young missionary Jimmy Doolittle told me about. He gave you quite a recommendation. He liked the way you took control in an emergency situation. I was glad to be of service, sir. He said you had an excellent rapport with the Chinese military. That could be quite a valuable asset. Most Americans seem to think the Chinese are a bunch of ignorant coolies. What are your plans after you turn in your report? Well, the war has crippled our missionary work, so I volunteered as a chaplain, but I haven't heard if they'll take me. Chaplain, huh? What's your denomination? Baptist, sir. I'm Baptist myself. Of course, I cuss and drink a little, but, uh... So, you want to be a chaplain, huh? Yes, sir. I want to serve God and my country. Well, I already have a chaplain. But I sure could use a man with your experience with the Chinese. In a couple of weeks, my outfit is going to have to go into the regular army. I'm not happy about it but I have no choice. I'd be glad to have you come in with us. I'll pray about it, sir. You do that, and while you're at it, pray for my pilots. John rode with General Chenault to Chongqing, where he turned in his written report and the $2,000 that Colonel Doolittle had given him to arrange a funeral for Corporal Factor, one of the raiders whose body had been found. The Army officer who took the report was amazed that John hadn't spent any of the money. The Chinese Air Force paid all of Corporal Factor's funeral expenses, and they even gave me free lodging. Again, the officer was completely amazed, stating that the Chinese he had seen always had their hand out. John didn't appreciate that and told him the Chinese had always been very good to him. John went to see the head chaplain about volunteering but he wasn't in the office. While John waited, he read some literature that was on the counter. One of the pamphlets he read presented Mozi Tung's revolution and praised him. John struck up a conversation with a man named Paul Daniel. John asked him about the pamphlet. I thought they were the bad guys. 
This seems to paint them as the hope of China. You probably heard some right-winger call them communists. They aren't Marxists at all, just agrarian reformers. That's more than you can say for the Generalissimo and his corrupt generals. Isn't General Chang a Christian? He pretends to be religious, but he's losing the war while his generals get rich. They keep dead men on the payroll and pocket all the money. Well, John was confused by all of this, and, and he was determined to find out more about it. Later, John found out what we now know from history. Mao Zedong was a communist and a murderer. He murdered millions of the Chinese people. Yes, and Chiang Kai-shek was a Christian man who cared about his troops enough that he even wrote a track, which we've already mentioned, called Why I Believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah, and that lousy communist well, Mao Zedong... Hang, hang on, hang on, Caleb. We're not going to get you started on communists or New Dealers or the government cover-up of John's death or mm. the JFK assassination or any other conspiracy theories, for that matter. We're just going right. to stay focused. All right, I'll, I'll be good. Okay. Okay, well, the next few days, John stayed busy visiting the American embassy and uh, attending church services and witnessing to some of the pilots at the hotel, all while he waited for word on the chaplaincy. One day, he was talking to General Chenault. Has the Lord told you what to do, Birch? No, sir. I still haven't heard from military headquarters. I can't figure out what's taking them so long to make up their minds. Well, you had better get used to that if you're going to join the Army. The war might be over before they make up their mind. I'll tell you what I need. I need some field intelligence officers who are old China hands. Men who lived here, speak the language, and know the customs. The enemy is throwing all they can at China. I don't have the luxury of endless supplies. And every time one of our boys gets shot down, I die a little. The hardened old general turned away, and John knew that he was trying not to weep. It touched John deeply that this hard-nosed old man hurt so badly for the men he had lost. I'm not trying to talk you into anything, Birch, but if you go into intelligence work, you can still preach on Sundays. This would be dangerous, dirty work, with times of extreme danger and also times of boredom. But it could save lives and make the difference between winning or losing this war. Just let me know. The conversation gave John a lot to think about it. He liked the freedom of still being able to preach on Sundays. Well, on July the 4th, Generalissimo and Madame Shang, along with General Chenault, invited John to a barbecue party. General Chenault introduced John to Madame Shang, as well as Generalissimo and other members of the governing family. John finally heard a little news from the head chaplain. The army had three rules for chaplains. One, he must be ordained. Two, he must have a degree from an accredited seminary. And three, have pastoral experience before being commissioned. Now, John met the first and third requirements, but the Bible Baptist Institute of Fort Worth was not accredited. So now, John was waiting to find out if they would make an exception, since he had two years of experience in China 
and a personal recommendation from the newly promoted General Jimmy Doolittle. Incidentally, Jimmy Doolittle was also awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his bravery in the bombing of Tokyo. Well, Bert, if you get tired of waiting around, I could give you a commission. Then, if by some miracle the chaplaincy opens up somewhere, you could transfer. Really? Oh, yes, sir. I would like that very much. I'm tired of waiting. I want to be useful. I would be honored to serve under you even for a short time. So, John was commissioned into the Army as a second lieutenant. John didn't understand why it had taken so long, but we can look back at John's life and see that God had put him there in China for a special purpose. And, because he was there, God used him in a great way to aid in the war effort and to save many men's lives, all while continuing his most important work as a missionary. So, General Chenault briefed John on his first mission. He was needed to go check the condition of some of the small, out-of-the-way airfields and to see if the gas and ammunition that the Flying Tigers had hidden at each of these locations was still there. The brass and <clears throat> gentlemen in Washington have written off China and are keeping the lion's share of men and supplies to recapture Burma. They don't seem to realize the billion Japanese soldiers that has been tied up here in China are not in the Pacific fighting against America. So anyway, we may need those supplies. Any questions? May I still preach to the Chinese churches along the way? John, I don't care if you preach to the devil, as long as you do your job. Thank you, sir. John and a Chinese companion, M. L. Wang, left in mid-September. They each took only what they could carry. Canteen, first aid kit, sea rations, Chinese coat, blankets, hunting knife, and a 45 automatic, along with some Chinese money. John also had a roll of maps and a list of contacts, along with a box of Chinese gospel tracts. During the next two months, the two men covered over 1,000 miles, walking, hitchhiking, by river, and even a few short hops on Chinese Air Force planes. John personally examined each can of gas, every box of ammo, and every bomb very meticulously for his report. He also checked the runways, and he was pleased to find out the local villagers had maintained them all very carefully. The peasants seemed to take great pride in doing their job well to help fight the Japanese. It reminded John of all the friends he had made during the six months after the fall of Hang Chau. Yes, all these people were stuck behind Japanese lines now, and there was no way for John to get information on their condition. All he could do was pray for his brethren that the Lord would sustain them during their hour of persecution. John and Wang returned safely, even though the mission had taken them right to enemy territory. When they got back, 
John was tasked with correcting any mistakes on the map and debriefing the pilots after they came back to the base. John was often very blunt with the pilots about their language. Sometimes he would say things like, just tell me what you saw and never mind the profanity. It made some of the pilots very mad, but they never complained when as they were leaving on a mission, John would always stop them and tell them that he was praying for their safety. On December the 10th, two new officers arrived, Lieutenant Colonel Jesse Williams and Captain Wilford Smith. They were to be intelligence officers as well. General Chenault wasn't pleased that General Beisel and the Brass had picked his officers. Besides that, Beisel held back uh, mail and supplies because of an old feud between Chenault and the high command. But John was able to develop a good working relationship with the two men. Williams had been an oil executive for 18 years in Shanghai, and Smith was a son of Christian Missionary Alliance missionaries and had been raised on the Yangtze River. John had, by now, adjusted to the fact that he wasn't going to join the chaplain's corps, but he constantly had a place to preach to the soldiers and, on missions, uh, he got to go to the Chinese churches for quite a while. John couldn't understand why God had overridden the circumstances, but now he could see God's hand the whole way. Many of the soldiers even received his preaching better, knowing that he was not a paid chaplain. As the war raged on, information on Japanese ship movements along the coast was few and far between. When information did come, it was always a week too late for General Chenault's flyers to do anything about it. So, Chenault sent John to enlist patriotic Chinese to report back by radio on Japanese ship movements. This time, John had to travel deep into Chinese territory. At one point, dressed as a Chinese peasant, he ate lunch at an open-air restaurant in plain view of a group of Japanese soldiers. Another time, he was stopped by the enemy, and they asked what he carried in the boxes. He replied in the local dialect that it was goods for the coast, and he was allowed to continue on his way. The eight-day journey took him into the area where he knew the Christians. He enjoyed their hospitality and preaching at home churches where they were meeting. See, the Japanese had burned all the church buildings in the area, and so they were now forced to meet in homes. Continuing on his journey, John saw the checkpoint ahead. He knew it would be impossible to avoid the guards, so he prayed for wisdom. Then... On the side of the road, he saw a large wooden bucket, which was used for dumping human excrement on the newly cultivated fields. For some reason, that neither I nor Kim nor any person involved in this podcast can figure out, the Chinese called these buckets honey buckets. Well, John quickly used the filthy bucket to conceal the incriminating gear. And then... Needless to say, the Japanese guards let him pass without a thorough search. The mission was a success. John enlisted several patriotic peasants, whom he knew he could trust, from the churches that he had preached in. 
He got them radios and taught them to report ship movements along the coast. The Flying Tigers were now able to fly missions and bomb these ships quickly and efficiently. John's next mission was to act as liaison for Marshal Yeo and his Chinese army. John called in air support for the soldiers, who fought bravely despite the fact that they had very little equipment. There was only one gun for every three soldiers, and most of them didn't even have shoes. When there was a lull in the fighting, John went over to Changsha, where he stopped by the Yell of China Association Hospital for some medical supplies to ward off another attack of the malaria. While he was there, he ran into an acquaintance from the summer before, named Arthur Hopkins. It's good to see you again, John. I've been wanting to, to get a hold of you and let you know my term is about up here with the hospital. Well, what will you do after that? Well, I was thinking about enlisting in the 14th. I sure would like to help you in intelligence. You're getting to be quite the legend around here in China. I've only done my duty. Besides, you can hardly compare my work with the pilots who risk their lives every day. But I'd be glad to have you on the team. Arthur took John to meet the American staff at the hospital. A smiling young woman wearing a nurse's uniform came from behind the desk to meet them. John, I'd like you to meet Marjorie Tooker. She's part of the American staff here. I just happen to be the only American here at the moment. Dr. Pettis is sick at home and Dr. Green is on furlough. Call me Marge. It's a pleasure to meet you, Marge. Why don't you two come across the street to my house for lunch? When John walked in, it occurred to him that it had been quite a while since he had had a home. That, coupled with having some Americans to talk to, brought back many memories from back home. They talked for quite a while, and Marjorie realized time had gotten away from them, and she had to hurry back to the hospital. John asked her how they were doing on medical supplies and equipment, and he told her that he would try his best to bring her their most critical needs at the next time he was able to come that way. John was called back to the command center shortly after that to help train seven new intelligence officers, including John's friend, Arthur Hopkins, and to receive orders for the, his new mission. He reported to Colonel Smith. You did a great job along the coast, Birch. Your operatives send in sightings of enemy vessels every day. The ones our pilots don't get, the Navy subs do. Glad to hear it, sir. Now, General Chenault will want you to go along the Yangtze River and set up a lookout network over there. Also, if we could interrupt the shipping on the Yangtze River, as well as along the coast, it'll make a big contribution to winning the war and save countless American lives. Yes, sir. I want you to take a couple of Chinese radio men and a bunch of radios into the bulge north of Changsha. The enemy is very concentrated in this area. Make contact with General Yeo, commander of the 2nd Guerrilla Brigade. He'll give you all the assistance you need. Can you handle it? Of course I can, sir. The Lord is with me. I don't doubt that the Lord's with you, John. I wasn't questioning your courage. On the way back to Changsha, while John was waiting to board a train... In one of the cities along the way, John looked up and saw 14 Japanese bombers escorted by 16 
fighter planes which were on their way to bomb the busy train station. There was only four battered and patched American P-40 fighters at the airstrip, but the Flying Tiger scrambled to try to intercept the 30 Japanese planes. John prayed that the Lord would help them and protect the American pilots. The Flying Tigers quickly turned the enemy planes for home, shooting down two bombers and three of the fighters. Two of the American planes crash-landed, but the pilots walked away. God had answered John's prayers once again. In Changsha, he stopped by the Yale in China hospital to deliver the medical supplies to Marjorie Tooker, which he had begged from the 14th Division's medic at the command center. Kind of strange that you show up just in time for lunch again. <laughs> yeah, isn't that unusual? I'm having a little get-together Saturday evening if you want to come over. Thank you. I'll be here. There were three British nurses, two doctors, and a couple of Australian officers at Marjorie's house on Saturday. John was very uncomfortable because they were all smoking and they started dancing. And as a pastor, he had preached against dancing. That evening, after John left, Marjorie thought of John's dedication to God. It wasn't an appendage to his life. It was his life. She hoped she would see more of him, but for now, he set out on his mission. Arthur, you know something of the danger involved in this mission. So, if, if I don't come back... Will you write to my parents? Tell them, tell them I love them and I deeply appreciate my Christian home and upbringing. You can count on me, John. John set up five watch positions at 100-mile intervals along the Yangtze River. From that time on, not a single Japanese ship moved on the Yangtze River without being observed by one of John's Chinese agents. The Japanese had driven Chinese residents of Hengkau out of their homes and begun storing explosive ammunition in their homes. John rode in the nose of the lead bomber to point out the houses that were being used so that citizens wouldn't be mistakenly bombed. At this time, the Japanese launched an attack on Changsha. From there, the way would be clear for them to capture numerous airstrips that were vital to the Flying Tigers. The only thing standing in their way was Marshal Yeo's 14,000 poorly armed and poorly equipped men. General Chenault sent John to the front to call in airstrikes for the Chinese. The Japanese attacked with around 60,000 men, and the battle raged for eight the carnage was sickening, but due in large part to John's calling in accurate enemy locations for airstrikes, the enemy was driven back into their bulge sanctuary. Because of his bravery in this battle, John was promoted to captain. But by this time, John was very tired of all the killing and the carnage. He was weary and just wanted for the war to be over so that he could go back to just being a missionary like he'd been called to be. He felt old and tired. John received letters from home. His brother, George Stanley, 
who intended to enter the ministry had become engaged. Also, news came that the family home had burned down due to sparks from a train that was passing nearby. During this time, John was back in Changsha training Chinese radio operators and cryptographers. They needed more radios badly, but due to political backstabbing among Chenault's superiors, the 14th was still not getting all the supplies and equipment that they desperately needed. So General Chenault bypassed Army channels and wrote a letter directly to President Roosevelt. He said that if he had 10,000 tons of supplies a month, he would sink 200,000 tons of enemy shipping every month. And the president pledged that he would make it happen, saying Chalnaut was the doctor and he approved the treatment. But still, very small amounts of supplies arrived. It seemed as though not even the president himself could clear the bureaucratic pipeline that was choking the war effort in China. Well, we're going to have to stop for now, but next week we will finish the true and exciting story of missionary John Birch. Until then, we hope you remember this scripture. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight, my goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Psalm 144, verse 1 and 2.